You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Julio, and I get to pastor at Grace Community Church. And before we get into the sermon this morning, I just want to thank Pastor Jeff and thank Nielsville for this invitation to be a part of International and World Communion Sunday. It is a true joy to see a little taste of heaven here on earth as we look around and we see so many differences in language and culture, ethnicity, and all other kinds of forms of diversity as we come together to worship the one who is worthy. It truly has been a blessing. I'd like to start by recalling a quote by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And he said a long time ago, he said that the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in the United States. That folks get together in small pockets based on their differences, but to worship the same God. And I've looked at some statistics, the Barna Group and Pew and things like this. There's been a little bit of progress made, but still communities are more integrated than our churches. Schools are more integrated than our churches. And I believe that the church of Jesus Christ should be leading the way in this. That in, the, in spite or despite our differences, we should reflect the unity that we see in our God, our triune God, three in one. So as we keep that in mind, I'd like for us to take a look at Act 16. And we're going to take a look at the place where this takes place. We're going to take a look at the people that are a part of the story. And we're going to take a look at the product of what God does. So I'd like for us to just take a look, Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Philippi, this is the setting, this is the place. As I was doing some research, I learned some very interesting things about Philippi. It was a very important place. When I started to uncover what it was about, what happened there, it really started to sound a little bit like Northwest DC in terms of its clout and in terms of its juice. It was a port city, so that brought a lot of commerce, a lot of travelers, folks that were trying to um, get involved in the trades. So it was kind of like a crossroads of the world. Trade and business was booming. The trade routes and the facility of a port made it a very diverse, multicultural, and eclectic place. This brought a diversity of thought, religion, beliefs, practices, and paradigms that formed part of that zeitgeist. One of the things that was interesting about Philippi is that it had a paved road. You might not think that's not a big deal, but for back then, it was a big deal. And this piece of road was called the Via Ignatia, and it was part of the Royal Highway. It was a way to mobilize the Roman troops really fast if they needed to put down an insurrection. With the building of this paved road brought other folks, brought more commerce. So it just, it, it just isn't the port, but now they have this way to get places faster. It was a fortified city, and there was a heavy military presence there. 
not just of active duty folks, but retirees. And the folks that would retire to Philippi that had been part of the military, they were part of the Praetorian Guard. I don't know if you've ever studied a little bit about the Praetorian Guard, but you can liken them a little bit to the Secret Service. Their role, their part was to guard the emperor, and if there were any dignitaries, any, any procurators or governors, these were the guys that were taking care of them. So as you start to put these pieces together, you start to see that Philippi was a metropolis where class was important, where rank was important to these folks. It was a place where money was moving, so socioeconomic status was yet another way in which there was rank and class. It was a place where people from all over were coming by, but since it was a Roman area, Romans had top notch. They were at the top of the food chain. So there was a difference also in citizenship. So you start to see that this was a place where your nationality, your language, your socioeconomic status, your education, and even whether you were civilian or former military, current military, played into the fabric of that place. This is the context of the place where this portion of scripture takes place. This is the backdrop where three very different people come to know the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the beginnings of the church at Philippi. Let's take a look at verses 13 to 15 and learn a couple of things of the first person that is mentioned here. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. I'd like to point out a couple of things from verse 14. She was from Thyatira. It's an ancient Greek city in Asia Minor. It's now the modern uh, Turkish city of Akishar, which means White Castle, if anyone's from New Jersey. Um, But the point here is that she's a foreigner. She's a foreigner. She isn't this Roman citizen. She didn't grow up in this milieu of place. She came from somewhere else. She most likely spoke with an accent. Not only that, we're given her name. You might not think that's a big deal, but in those days and in that culture, usually women were not named in official documents and they were not counted whenever there was a count. So if you think back to when Jesus fed the 5,000, depending on the translation you read, it says 5,000 men. It didn't count women. But here, we have a clear mention of this woman's name, a foreigner and a woman. It tells us that she's a dealer in purple cloth. What does this inform us to? Well, who were the only folks wearing purple in those days? Royalty. She was dealing in the Versace of the times. You see, it was a long and arduous process to get that deep purple color onto cloth. It took a lot of time and a lot of effort. And so she could sell it at high prices to people that could pay those high prices. 
So now we learn that she's a foreigner. She probably has an accent. We know that she probably also is making bank. She's probably in the higher echelons socioeconomically. The fact that she sold a commodity that was exclusive, the fact that she's presented to us by name, the fact that she was active in the marketplace. Think of it, back then, um, it kind of was a man's world. And she was in the marketplace and killing it. What kind of personality do you think she had? She was probably a go-getter, probably very entrepreneurial. And I hope this starts to paint a picture of Lydia. But we also see that the Lord opened her heart. Her position in society, her position that came about from money and her business was great, but still there was something lacking. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The next thing that I want to mention about that is that it is the Lord who does the saving and the seeking. One of the things that I hear a lot in church circles is, oh, we want to be seeker-friendly. We want to have a seeker-friendly church, and I'm all for that. The people of God ought to be hospitable. We ought to be welcoming. But one of the things we must never forget is that the true and original seeker is God. When man fell in sin in Genesis chapter 3, it wasn't man that went looking for God. Man's proclivity is to run and hide. The one who came to seek was God himself. And he comes and he says, Adam, where are you? Not a geographic question. If it would have been about location, that would imply that Adam was the best hide-and-seek player ever. <laughs> I believe it was a soul question. Adam, where are you at, man? What have you just done? And we don't only see this in Genesis 3. We see this in the New Testament. God himself comes down. He puts flesh on, and he comes to seek us. So the Lord opened her heart. Emphasis on the Lord. Verse 15, her household was baptized. The ramification of her receiving this grace of God was that her immediate community, her family, her nuclear family, came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as well. And then we see an outflow of that. There was a demonstration of hospitality. In verse 15, she says to Paul, come and stay at my house. She responded to all the goodness taking place God sending Paul to her community, the Lord opening her heart to the message, the baptism of her and her family, she responded to all of that with hospitality, with warmth, sharing an intimate communion. And a good question for us this morning would be, how is the outflow of God's love in my life towards my immediate community, whether that's nuclear family, extended family, or what have you? Let's pivot and take a look at the second person from this same place in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The first thing we notice is that this was a female slave. And depending on the translation that you read, uh, some, some translations call her a slave girl. So it, it indicates to us that she was on the younger side. So now we, we have a woman, most likely a foreigner, just like Lydia, but on the complete opposite spectrum in terms of socioeconomic status and agency. She, we're not given a name of who she is, and she was at the two most bottom rungs of the social ladder as far as the times and the culture were concerned. She was a slave and also a foreigner. She was also being exploited in two ways. The enemy of our souls had afflicted her with an unclean spirit of divination. She was an instrument of evil divination, dark powers, unclean sources of words of knowledge. And she was being used by her owners to turn a profit. Like outside of her regular slave duties, they were also capitalizing on her spiritual affliction. But it is apparent that she too, like Lydia, heard Paul sharing the message of salvation. And in verse 17, that evil spirit declares, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Through the power of God's spirit, Paul commands the unclean spirit to leave this girl. And she experiences and receives from God spiritual freedom, liberation, and freedom from the job as a fortune teller. Her experience with the gospel and God's servants also had an impact on her immediate community. So for Lydia, her family comes to saving knowledge of Christ. For the slave girl, she's free from this spirit of divination and therefore from this job of fortune telling. But her community didn't receive all of that very well. In fact, they were angry that they could no longer capitalize and make money off of her. As we compare and contrast, one of these, they were both women, they were both foreigners. One was free, one was a slave. One was rich, the other poor. One was, one, one was uh, from Thyatira, and the other one, we don't even, we're not even told where she's from. And I can't help but parallel this to the Gospel of John, chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, an academic, someone with money, someone respected in his community, and he comes at night to speak to the master. And in chapter 4 of John, the very next chapter, Jesus is speaking to a woman in the middle of the day at a well. Oh, by the way, she's a Samaritan, a hated group. Usually we fragment these pieces and look at one chapter and then the next chapter, but when you put them together, what is it telling us? And it's telling us that the rich, just as the poor, need Jesus Christ. That the woman, as well as the man, needs Jesus Christ. That the free, as well as the slave, need Jesus Christ. And we see this happening here. There's a third person in this story, the jailer. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates and ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out, out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all of the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. We introduce a third person into the story, and this is a male. This is a guy. But we don't get his name, and he was most likely a Roman citizen in order to be in one of these government positions. He was a jailer, so we're probably thinking maybe mid-level government worker. So Lydia was probably making a lot of money. The jailer was probably making some money. And then the slave girl was making none. Lydia, we get her name. We don't get a name for the jailer. We don't get a name for the slave girl. Lydia was free. The jailer was free. The girl obviously was a slave. A little sidebar to all this. The slave girl was out and about, but in her spirit, she was chained up. Paul and Silas were in prison, but in their spirit, they couldn't be more free. Because freedom in Christ has nothing to do with location, geographic location, as we alluded to prior. This jailer was probably listening to those prayers and hymns that Paul and Silas were offering up while they were bound in stocks. And when the foundations are shaken by an earthquake, this is a Holy Spirit moment, he thinks, oh my goodness, all of the prisoners have probably fleed. And he was about to kill himself. Why? Because under Roman law, if a prisoner escaped, whatever their sentence was, was now on the jailer. And if everyone just up and left, he knew that Rome was not going to be kind. He was doing his job and he was trying to do it well. He was a man that followed orders. And despite his position, his freedom, his nationality, he was also in need of Jesus Christ. So I'd like for you to ask me a question as we start to land this plane a little bit. I'd like for you to ask me, so what? One, two, three. So what? So what? Why does this matter today and here? Folks, we live in one of the most diverse areas of the nation. There's like a, a report came out a couple months ago, and in the top 10, four of them were just in Montgomery County. There was Germantown, Gaithersburg, Silver Spring, Rockville probably. I'm missing one. But we live in an area where the world has come to us. We live in an area where people from all kinds of backgrounds, cultures, languages, socioeconomic status, education levels are around us all the time. It's much like Philippi. 
The next thing I'd like to mention here is that all three people in this story that represent millions, all of them had a unique or had a universal malady. That malady is sin. Malcolm Muggeridge, he was uh, an English journalist from like two centuries ago, phenomenal writer. He said, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. All you need to do is turn on the news, and yet there are streams of thought out there that say we're inherently good, just a couple of bad apples in the bunch. The gospel tells us we are all depraved and fallen and broken and in need of a savior. And it doesn't matter if you're in Lydia's category or the slave girl's category or a mid-level government worker like, like the jailer. Everyone has a universal malady. And the only, the only antidote is Jesus Christ. So the conclusion, the product, we looked at the place, we looked at the people, and now the product well, this was the foundations of the church at Philippi. And some time later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to them. And the conclusion is just going to be the four, first four verses of Philippians 1. But I'd like for you to listen to these words through the context of a multicultural lens. What we will see are couplets. Paul, Timothy, God the Father, Jesus the Son, elders and deacons. We will see couplets. And we will see how Paul brings all of those couplets that have declensions into unity. So Philippians 1, 1 to 4. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, with the overseers and, and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Who was Paul in relationship to Timothy? Paul was the mentor. Timothy was the mentee. But he says both bond servants of Jesus Christ, slaves. He takes those two declensions and he brings them into submission and saying, there is no mentor, no mentee. We are both servants of Christ. Continuing on, he says together, together with the overseers, which are elders, and deacons, another set of declensions, but he brings them into unity. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son. There's a familial declension, a father and a son. However, we know that they are equal in majesty, in power, in authority, and in glory. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. When this letter was written to the church in Philippi, guess who was in the pews? It was Lydia, sitting next to the slave girl, perhaps, shoulder to shoulder with the government worker. What do you think that stirred in their hearts to hear Paul say, listen, all of you, I pray for all of you, each of you, with joy, and he brings them all into this unison. You know why? Because at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. At the foot of the cross, topography, level ground. Paul also writes somewhere else that there is no Jew or Gentile. 
free or slave, man or woman, in Christ. So I close by saying this. May we be a church. Yes, like Philippi, but even more than that, a church from Revelation 7, 9, where the Apostle John describes a multitude of people praising the Lord from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God that does not make exception of person. We trust you, Lord, that we might be able to reflect your kingdom here in Germantown. In Christ's name we pray, amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.